I think we're at the point now where the companies that survive the next six months are going to be incredibly lucky. I think it's six weeks. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, senior reporter at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer, the author of Ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, a co-host of No Parking Podcast, uh, and also at Argo AI. And we have today someone awesome. We have the original co-founder of the Atonicast, Damon Laverance. Hello, Damon. Hey, friends. How are you? It's been uh, been far, far, far too long. You're an amazing human being. We're all happy <laughs> to see you. Um, but I have a question. My memory is failing me. Can you explain how the Atonicast was born? Because in my mind, it's hazy, except you were the guy. So how do you remember it? How do you remember it? No, no. So I think actually all credit uh, for many things goes to Riley Brennan over at uh, Trucks, right? So uh, Riley and I were on a thread, God, it must have been over three years ago now. And he's like, we really need to get like a podcast together. And he'd mentioned Ed. And I was like, yeah, I, c- I could hop on with Ed for like a week and, you know, just kind of discuss topics and that kind of thing. And then I think I said to Ed, you know, Alex would be really fun for this. <laughs> and uh, that was, you know, the, the the biggest mistake we made. And uh, <laughs> shockingly enough, it's still going strong. Um, Some say. So, yeah, exactly. Why, uh, why did, what was the connection that Riley had with Ed, though? Uh, well, no, I, you know, Riley was just kind of looking at the few people that were um, covering the autonomous space that, you know, he actually thought knew what they were talking about. Right. And Ed, Ed, Ed and I were one of the few people that were actually covering it for a few years prior to that. Um, so I think he was I, I mean, to a certain extent, it was, you know, obviously Riley puts out his awesome newsletter uh, every Sunday. And, you know, as he saw the podcast medium coming up and up and up, he was just really curious why nobody was serving what was obviously an underserved audience, um, particularly given how many people were subscribing to his newsletter, were champing at the bit for this kind of news. Um, so having a podcast actually dedicated to it, um, you know, really helped out. Just kind of uh, raise the uh, raise the profile of the segment a little bit more, and also just gives an opportunity. What you guys have done really, which has been amazing to see since I've left, is just the amount of interviews you guys have gotten, the 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 C suite that you guys have been. Uh, 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 bringing in on a regular basis has just been insane. Like I've just, it's been amazing to watch. I've been very proud of you guys. Very, very <laughs> proud. Oh, thanks. Here's a question, Damon. At one point, I remember you yes. said, this is really great, but I'm really, really, really busy. And you went <laughs> off and, and to do other stuff. Mm. Do you want to talk about that? Because sure. yeah, yeah. at the time I said, this Damon guy is a lot smarter than me. <laughs> Maybe I should follow his example. <laughs> well, so, you know, what I did, unlike you, is when I went to go work for an OEM, I left the show. So that was the uh, <laughs> that was the that was the that was the defining characteristic. But no, I, I decided like it was time to actually like start um, using some of the skills and networking that I'd uh, had over the years to you know. I, I think all of us have complained um, uh, pretty much endlessly for the last several years that like the people that are communicating these kind of technologies are not doing a good job. Right. And um, whether it's on the technical aspect, whether it's on the societal aspect. So being able to kind of help these companies start talking about this stuff in a slightly more intelligent way. And, you know, particularly when you look at like PR agencies and that kind of thing, they don't have a lot of experience in the space either. So all of those things kind of came up, but, um, but yeah, so no, a few, few communications jobs and uh, now back to doing some consulting and, probably some volunteer work to help out with the COVID situation. And, uh, uh, message to our listeners. Um, if you need <laughs> consulting work done, any of us for the right price might be available. May, well, may, um, maybe, well, maybe not Kirsten because she's, you know, she can never, never do that. Right, Kirsten? I've been a journalist too long to become a consultant now. Mm. Like that, that ship has sailed, I think, for me. That ship has never sailed. Never sailed. (laughs) (laughs) They were always going to need smart people on the other side. Not that we need, you know, whatever the ratio of like, what, three PR people to one journalist in the US. Yeah, it's much higher than that, though. Yeah, it was like five. And the pitches aren't getting any better or smarter. I mean, (sighs) but really, were the pitches ever better or smarter? No, that's that's always been part of the problem. And what frustrates me is that, like, a lot of the companies, especially the companies that have money, 
are like allergic to buying advertising. Like they feel there's this weird perception that like buying advertising is somehow like an admission of, you know, I think certain companies exemplify this, um, you know, like, like selling advertising is a sign of weakness. And what's unfortunate from a media perspective is that like, you know, that's how media people get good jobs, you know? And, and, and unfortunately I think like hiring three journalists as a PR person, um, you know, seems like as a company, the way to, to get things done. But then, you know, the problem that you see a lot of companies run into is just like, where do we even place this? Like who's out there writing about this stuff um, that understands it well enough that we can, you know, actually get this story told well, because that still requires journalists. And, and to some extent that brain drain um, is a real problem. And, and again, it's like sort of a self-inflicted problem because um, you know, pe- companies would rather, you know, hire journalists as PR people than provide the revenue that the media outlets need to pay good, you know, good job, you know, good people to do good work in the media. It's a, it's a big situation. I don't know if it's a disagreement, but I, I guess I'm confounded a bit. What advertising, how would that even work for in the autonomous vehicle industry, for example? Uh-huh. Like what kind of advertising do you mean and where? I mean, Cruise has freaking billboards around Bay Area. Yeah. And I don't get, I don't know if that's a good idea, but like my, my point is more like, yeah, you're right. That is, that is a problem in the autonomous space. And, and I guess, you know, on the OEM side, certainly there is a lot of advertising that happens, but um, uh, I don't know. I mean, like if you want this space covered well, you know, the, the media outlets have to be making some money somehow. Right. Maybe if advertising is not the right way to do it, then what is, you know? Right. Well, I just see right now because it's such a nascent industry still. I mean, yes, we've been talking about it for years, but really in reality, it's not as developed as automakers, right? Where, you know, you open up any glossy magazine and there's a big layout of whatever vehicle they want to sell. It just doesn't exist. The market doesn't exist really for, you know, maybe Waymo can do that. But until there's some sort of service that's consumer facing, I don't like, how, does a LiDAR company like put a ad in a magazine? Pro- probably not. I don't know. Maybe a trade journal. But I think that sponsoring events is more of a thing for them because then they reach, you know, they reach the people they want to reach. That to me is where they're, that to me is where the industry is at right now. Hey, Damon, what does a LiDAR company do that doesn't have an awesome comms person on board? Like, how does that work? Uh, um, I mean, uh, no, I I think to a large extent for a lot of these companies, like they're just not that um, we saw so much focus right on the LiDAR industry and all the other like related startups in this space three, four, two, three years ago. Right. And so you've got a lot of larger players like Velodyne, like just has, there's just such a massive operation there. Um, they're anything they announce just gets pressed just because they're a really well-known player, but you know, at any given time. And I think actually Angus, my former CEO was, was on here before. And he said, you know, you hear these figures about any given time, there's like 70 to 80 different LiDAR companies out there, but really there's like five, right. That are actually shipping product and are legitimate companies. Um, but at the end of the day, they're, they're suppliers, right? Like, you know, um, when we think of suppliers from a tier one perspective, like Conti's and your Vallejo's and that kind of thing, they've got massive press operations for these smaller companies. Um, it's, it's a lot harder to break through, but at the same time to the advertising point earlier, you know, aside from really kind of espousing the technology and the abilities of it and, you know, what differentiates in the space, like advertising is a part of that too. Like you have to go through trade journals, you have to go through more targeted media opportunities, um, stuff that is, shall we say, less sexy than a cover of Bloomberg. Right. Yeah. Right. No, look, I mean, I, it's funny because I've, you know, the, the comms challenge in the autonomous space is actually something I find incredibly interesting. Like like it is so hard for these companies to um, tell stories like that, that are meaningful to people about products and technology that aren't really touching their lives yet. Um, It's, it's a really, you know, I'm not. And they they burnt through so many narratives up until this point too, right. With, you know, five, six years of talking about this technology, like we've gone through the safety narrative, we've gone through the efficiency narrative, we've gone through all these different supposed, you know, magic bullet uh, uh, solutions. Um, There aren't a lot of other things to talk about at this point. 
Now it's all about um, you know other industries outside of autonomous vehicles. That's exactly. that's in the narrative in 2020. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this, and I'm guessing probably not. I, I just did a quick search. I don't see anything, but um, you know, Apple's shipping the the you know iPad Pro with a, a mm-hmm. little lidar sensor. Yeah. I was just wondering. I mean, I doubt. Like, given you know, I'm sure it's a short range. You know, it's for augmented reality and and very different than an automotive application. But I'm just wondering, does anybody know who that supplier is? Because that's something that could definitely create some 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 scale. Damon. Uh, don't know exactly who the supplier is, <laughs> but what, what, what would your best guess be? Um, so smile, everybody. <laughs> um, no, I, to be honest, I really don't know. No, I mean, there's really only two suppliers of, uh, the SPAD B cell array that they're using essentially. Um, and, uh, like I said, honestly, their supplier side, I just don't know nearly as much about, but again, there's only two suppliers. So and who are those two suppliers? Oh, I don't remember what they don't remember oh, okay. their, their names, off but they're not, not the bigger automotive there. Yeah. I was going to say they're, they're companies that, um, if, if, you know, if, if we were talking on a Samsung podcast, you'd probably recognize, but, okay. um, uh, but no, not a, not a, not a well-known, uh, tier one. Um, but no, I saw that. And, uh, again, I mean, to, to be honest, like that's kind of the dream for some of these companies that are really working on just the fully digital implementation of LiDAR versus some of the old legacy solutions is you can bring all these components down into a really small uh, chipset and extend the use cases. But and getting back to uh, Kirsten's point earlier, you know, it's a matter of a lot of people talking about these technologies now being applied to other use cases, right? So it's, you know, a lot of people are looking at it from, hey, we're, you know, we're not working on the car stack as much anymore. We're taking that same technology and adapting it for like, you know, um, uh, railway inspection or something like that. So you're taking that same autonomous driving technology and adapting it to an environment that's private, that's easier to manage, that you don't have to worry about the risks of and that kind of thing. And I think the same's happening, gonna happen with LiDAR technology over the next, you know, five, 10 years. Yeah. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Well, that might be a good segue to um, to talk a little bit about um, sort of how other companies either are pivoting or, or kind of need to find ways to pivot. And um, I was just tweeting this morning a little bit about Canoe. Um, I know people who listen to this show or follow me on Twitter probably know that I'm Huge canoe fan. Um, I just think their their stuff is so cool, and it is really cool. Yeah, can you, um, can and, you catch but, me up a little bit, Ed? Because yeah, I'm a little bit, yeah, uh, so, a little bit out of the space. Totally. Um, so canoe is it was they were started as e e velocity e velocity. Yes, yeah, they they've gone through a name change. Um, but but effectively, um, you know they're they're a really intriguing company because um, or they were were a really intriguing company because they. Uh, you know, and I think this is one of the things that 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 the whole industry has been grappling with, right? Is that, um, you know, to make certain business models work, you need the right product for that business model. And I think that sharing, like anything shared, that's been one of the big challenges is that people are trying to share vehicles that were not really designed to do it. And so, for example, like Car2Go, I was now out of business in the U.S., um, you know, they came out of nowhere doing really well with um, because they started with smarts. And frankly, I think it was because Daimler just couldn't, you know, they had they'd federalized the smart for the U.S. market. And nobody wanted to buy them. They had to do something. They dumped them into these fleets. And it turned out these tiny little vehicles with very easy to use interiors and, um, you know, it's easy to just get in and, and, you know, find one, park it anywhere, get in, use it. It was really simple. It became really popular, at least here in Portland. 
And then when they switched over to the next generation of vehicles, they need to, you know, move volumes on. Um, they were the sort of like GLA. GLA, is that right? CLA, the, the bad Daimler. Which are Mercedes vehicles and like just totally don't have any of those things that made the smart car work. And so, so Canoe, you know, they did this really cool all electric van that was like set up as called a loft on wheels. Uh, it was like the the size of a Prius, but the interior space of like a Suburban, um, all uh, uh, drive-by wire, um, which allowed a really, really unique design. Um, no, no interior screen. It was bring your own, bring your own screen. Um, and, and they also, it was purely, there was no option to buy this thing. It's purely a month to month, no obligation subscription which is also unique um, in the space because other companies have done subscriptions, but they're basically just leases with like maybe some insurance rolled in. So the problem is, is that, is that, you know, the whole idea was to build a vehicle that would make people actually want to share it and not just share it in that, you know, you could do sort of a micro rental. If you had it for the month, you could, you could do a micro rental to, to someone else and then get some, you know, credit off of your, your monthly um, subscription um, it also came with, or one of the options, I guess, was going to be um, uh, insurance for ride hailing. And so it was really targeting people who wanted to uh, have a vehicle for ride hailing. Um, and so, you know, it, it was this really, and it's a big bet, right? So like, and they're also, by the way, they're doing only contract manufacturing, which I think is also a really interesting sort of move in the post-Tesla EV startup environment to just say, we're not even going to mess with manufacturing. We're going to have some pros do it and, and, and let them do that. So you know, very unique approach, um, very unique vehicle that really spoke to me on a personal level. Very bad timing. But now with the death of, of sharing, it, it seems like it. So Kirsten maybe has an optimistic well, take. Well, it's, optim- it's not that it's optimistic, but right now from what I'm hearing around states that don't have stay-at-home orders in is that uh, dealerships are selling more cars. Hmm. They've never been busier. Hmm. It's just anecdotally, right? Yeah. Canoe, I think think at first glance, I agreed with Ed and was like, yeah, their business is, how is that going to be in this? Like once we get through COVID-19, the way we interact socially is going to change forever. I think Um, it will mark a generation like other generations before us have also been marked by certain things where um, I would compare it to my mother-in-law, for example, who was a refugee during World War II and ended up becoming uh, very successful. And, you know, later on in life um, with her husband and lived in this beautiful home and everything like that. And yet she would still save like the salad that had dressing on it and eat it two days later, which is why would she do that? And it was because what affected her as a child, she never, it marked her for, for life. And if the COVID-19 pandemic goes long enough, I think how we interact socially, how we use things, how we use transportation and, and the comfort level that we have next to each other will change. This is if this goes on forever. So at first glance, Canoe doesn't seem like a good bet. But the fact that they have a bring your own screen uh, ability the fact that this is sort of a private ownership that could be used the way you want, I think it could actually work better than some of the other models out there. Such as? Like a, a, a cruise pod where you have to, or a Waymo where you have to use a screen, for example. The question is going to be, though, is everyone going to just completely back off ride hailing and public transit and go right back to the private car ownership? because they are by themselves or with just their family members. Well, that's not going to work because people, the people who don't want to share a car are going to be even less happy sharing a train or a bus. <laughs> so, right. and if everybody, if everyone piles into privately owned vehicles, then traffic literally will not move. Right. So no, we, have, no we, we have to, there needs to be an equilibrium of modes. And so for the sharing to work in an autonomous vehicle, you've got to have a cleaning solution. You have to. And I think screens are going to go out of vogue because we all know that seatback screens in private vehicles, but especially shared vehicles, generally suck. And, and because they're a hassle to clean, um, it's one less thing to clean. It's so, amazing how, how well positioned Amazon is for this, not only with their delivery business, but also just with voice 
you know, Alexa. I mean, honestly, I think, you know, we there's been a lot of talk about voice. I know it was a big theme at CES, as Kirsten um, wrote about and, and we discussed. But um, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, until self-cleaning, self-disinfecting uh, touchscreens becomes a, a thing, which I'm sure companies are already working on. Because you don't want to, you don't want to be the third or fourth passenger in a vehicle that no, has not been disgusting. cleaned. Yeah, and it, we're already seeing that in. in a, I don't know if if any of you have been to a grocery store during uh, this mm-hmm. in the past month, but the way people even interact with, I mean, the people who didn't have Apple Pay before certainly do now, because they don't want to touch the screen. I, I was actually at a grocery store this this weekend and um, they were having a really unique problem that made me start thinking about, you know, we were talking on last week's discussion episode, Kirsten, you were talking about design for operations and things like that. And and um, this is kind of a smaller grocery store um, and it had like, I think five or six like human checkout lanes, like non-self-checkout. And I think four of them, all but two of them were down um, because they'd been disinfecting so much um, that the, uh, uh, the sanitizer they were using was actually causing like the keyboards to short out and stuff like that. And so they weren't <laughs> working. No. So, I mean, this is like, you know, I think we're learning, we're going to learn a lot and, and just kind of how like automotive grade has reached this point that like seems, if you just look at it objectively it, it, or without understanding what cars, how cars are used, it can seem like car, you know, spending three years to test a car to the, to the extent that they're tested, uh, can seem excessive, and certainly Tesla has has sort of you know taken that approach and and cut back a lot on on how much they test. But the reality is is that you don't know how these systems react to all of these weird you know these things that come up. And so I think one of the things I'm definitely keeping an eye on is you know uh, are the the vehicles and the systems that we're using are they can they stand up to just like being doused in like alcohol sanitizer? Uh, you know, many times a day. That's It's just a question nobody's thought of before and it's going to be part of the testing regimen now. Well, well, that's why I think to go back to Canoe, that instead of trying to figure out a way to automate cleaning a screen, just removing the screen altogether or mm-hmm. having your own. It's just one less vector, right? I could see how it could create other problems that we hadn't thought about, but it does solve that one, which is having a person go through and automate, you know, how how... How do you have, for example, fully driverless vehicles where people feel comfortable? Yeah, there's not a human being in there, but they don't know who was in there before. And how do you clean that? Do you have well, following in a car and every single time no, it no, opens no. its doors? I mean, what do you do? You've got to have there's, there ha- there's going to have to be some kind of minimum viable standard for cleaning that's going to involve. I, I I'm not an I, I don't know if anyone's an expert in this yet. Uh, you know, a UV flash or some other system uh, after each ride. Um, combined with something, some elements of what the Chinese are doing regarding temperature testing. Um, and there's going to be, I mean, this is going to be a surveillance issue, medical history regarding recency of illnesses, biometric scanning. All of this is going to happen in the United States. Maybe not to the extent as in China, but something has to happen. I see Damien shaking his head though. Something's going to happen whether we like it or not uh, in the United States. Uh, it, it, if we don't want it to be as strict as what the Chinese do, then we have to be prepared to accept a a higher level of potential outbreaks. Which as Americans, we've always been a little bit more inclined to do. We're willing to take our personal freedom yeah. uh, with a certain amount of risk. Um, but businesses the- are not going to be able – like uh, if you're operating a shared service, a private shared service, or even a private service that's not shared, you cannot allow – you can't. It's like you can't get a reputation for allowing a certain uh, an unreasonable level of infections occurring in in your in your vehicles. I just had a wild idea, so I'm going to put it out here, untested. We talked about in the past how autonomous vehicle companies won't compete on safety because there will there should be an across the board standard for safety, and that instead it will be about services and stuff like that. But and this is kind of a little bit wild, but I'll just put it out there anyway. What if in a post-COVID-19 world and let's say that shared service networks, it kind of like a, you know how an Airbnb and stuff and when you, the peer-to-peer car rental services, it's based on ratings and to become part of like, essentially it's a membership that as part of this membership to use the shared service or ride hailing that you 
are part of medical screening or you're can prove that you have been healthy or have done temperature reading. Like the, like the clear airport service, but for health. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, one of the, the fascinating aspects of all of this too, is just the question of, you know, what happens to the sort of upswing in, in urbanist thought that sort of happened over the last couple of years. Um, it's also something I've been discussing on Twitter a little bit. And, and it's just, I'm just looking at the responses that I've been getting and, and people are so all over the place about this. And it seems like I'm, I'm lucky enough that I've managed to, by not discussing politics, have people kind of from both all sides of the political spectrum uh, as followers. And, and I'm definitely seeing a breakdown of, you know, or, or a, a breakout of uh sort of more conservative leaning folks are definitely like, yep, you know, urbanism is, is over. This is, we, we should be glad. We're lucky that we have uh, a suburban car-based society. Um, and uh, others, some of the urbanists um, who follow me and I, I chat with on online um, are saying things like, you know, it, look at, look at uh, you know, our, even though we are more car-based and isolated and, and suburban, um, you know, we're having a harder time stopping the the spread of of this disease um, relative to incredibly dense places, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, um, and that you know, in a way, it's not so much what your development pattern is or or your use of public transportation. Um, it's it's uh, social and political cohesion um, and, and institutions, um, and and you know, Tokyo, you're still seeing pictures of of subway cars jammed full of people. They're just all wearing masks because um, already, you know, they've had to fight off influenza and things like that um, by having these incredibly high rates of mask use. And so they're used to that and they have that as more of a social cohesion, whereas I think in Singapore, for example, they have much more, you know, stronger government institutions and less privacy and things like that. So so maybe, you know, maybe it is less development patterns and more about social and, and, and government features. But anyway, it's, it's an interesting thing to untangle and it comes at a really interesting time because public transit and urbanism and, and redeveloping cities for more shared spaces and things like that has become such a hot issue in, in recent years. I think that the privacy issue will also compel people to go back towards private ownership because it comes down to what you just said. The, the Americans love their freedom of movement, which, by the way, isn't um, standard across socioeconomic groups as it is. But 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 those who can afford it, they value that freedom of movement. And for them, it's getting in a vehicle. Um, a, an urbanist might feel like freedom of movement is actually being able to pick within different modes and public transit and all this. But there's a big chunk of 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 U.S. Um, citizens out there, folks living in the U.S. who view an opposite freedom of movement. And then if you couple that with potentially what will be required to use public transit or other things um, like surveillance, you know, temperature um, that's happening already in China is to go into restaurants and things like that. You're getting your temperature taken. That is going to compel even more people to not participate in that type of activity. I think, I don't know. Again, you know, we've, we've seen all these projections for mega cities and everything else that's going to come up over the next, what, 10, 20 years. And you have to obviously question how we're going to adapt those cities to these kind of challenges on a regular basis, because they're going to increase as we have more population in a smaller area. Right. Um, you know, getting back to like the cleaning side of things and vehicles and that kind of thing. I mean, if you go through I don't know, Ford, GM, Nissan, Toyota's patent portfolio, all of them have worked on some kind of um, antimicrobial fabric for cars and some kind of cleaning solutions that absorb a that absorb bacteria and that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I think to a large extent, this might just be a material science issue more than anything else when it comes to, when it comes to these vehicles, um, because the styling certainly isn't changing between most of them. Was there, I think there was an article that came out last week or so about just, you know, the bread box design is, is now overwhelming the entire mobility segment. John Volker, um, right? Yeah. No. yeah. Mm. Was it John? Anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, between canoe, cruise, auto, like you name it, they're, they're, they're all pretty much the same, uh, the same shape and the same platform. Um, here was the major thing. My biggest takeaway from the COVID situation so far was five years ago when we were all talking about it's going to be awesome. We have this little robot kind of trolley up to our house and deliver food. And 
now's the time we actually freaking need that, right? Like that's now is the exact time where we need that kind of delivery mechanism, whether it's for you know goods or whatever. Um, you know, I've got a 73 year old or 74 year old mom that had to go out for groceries yesterday. Did like, I got her set up with like a, a delivery service or a pickup service rather. And, um, you know, that's still a bit of a harrowing trip for her. Right. We were talking about that last week where, you know, if there's going to be any companies that manage to raise funds in 2020, it is going to be delivery focused. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and interesting, um, development too, just in the last, since we last talked, um, is that um, USDOT uh, is is advancing uh, rulemaking proposals uh, that will allow uh, a class of non-occupant vehicles. And David Estrada from Neuro discussed this. Um, I think he said on the show that he expected that there was, there was at least a chance of, of that new category being created this year. Um, certainly, I think this, this news you know, or this, this development, this new world we're living in um, is going to light a fire under that aspect of, of potential regulatory change. And um, man, I mean, that could, yeah, I, I, I think we could see other players start to pivot towards that um, uncrewed, fully uncrewed vehicle um, that is only for delivery, but is, you know, similar to a car in other ways. Um, it seems like, uh Yeah. Kirsten, have you heard anything from uh, Postmates on their uh, serve robot, how the deployment's going on in L.A.? No, we talked to um, Ali. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on an episode, but that was back in, what, November, December? Um, maybe we should, we should check in with them and, and see if they have any plans to expand that. Yeah, because that was right around the time they started uh, running pilots in L.A. So it would be really interesting to know what the uptake is on that. Going back for a moment to Kirsten's question about urbanism, uh, you know, reports out of China suggest that people are already returning to the modes they were using before trains, um, traffic jams are beginning again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, people have to live and go where the jobs are. So if in China, I think they have what, two months of lockdown, seven weeks, people are returning to normal with new measures that allow them to live in place and go back to traditional patterns. It's going to go back to traditional patterns. In the United States, the because our starting point is more suburbanization and car, uh, you know, car commuting, if people who live in the city can age into career paths that allow them to move out, which they generally do anyway, but if they can and they've lived through this poorly managed crisis, thank you, government, then I think we will see increased demand for autonomy for solo rides. And eventually, right. privately owned autonomy, but, but that doesn't help traffic, and it creates no, quite, quite the opposite. No, it right? doesn't. And I think that cities right now have an awesome opportunity to enact measures which will force people's hands to decide how they want to live. If you know that means that if what is it? Is it Chicago or Boston? One of those cities took. Uh, oh no, it was Philadelphia. Took some like central thoroughfare and converted to bike only couple of days ago. So I think that if people start getting to getting around on bikes, they may not want to go back. And I think you're going to see a couple of cities are going to see some real pushback to restoring what traffic patterns look like. So, so, so the factor that, that doesn't come up as much in this is also, and, and I think we'll, we'll do maybe next week's discussion episode, focus on this, but the oil price issue um, we're seeing futures way down. Um, we're seeing price of the pump way down. Um, and it looks like that's going to continue. Wait, hang um, on. Before, before we get into the oil things, let me say this. I, a lot of the strategists at the AV companies were counting on behaviors evolving into AV designs that they had decided on a year or two ago. Oh. AV designs, if they evolve towards these new patterns, they'll succeed. But if these companies, some of these companies insist on behaviors that were you know projected before coronavirus and they stick too closely to them they're going to fail even if the autonomy works and that's where the strategists have to be really really good and you're talking about shared rides here shared rides and solar rides because if you projected no solar rides all sharing in the wrong neighborhood with the wrong fence and your demographics guesses were wrong you're wrong on like three or four points there even if the tech is great but then, but then that raises questions about that. Can, you know, can solo rides sustain autonomous vehicle business model economically? I mean, our, our conversation with Ashley Noon is the other week suggested 
It Maybe can't. Not. Yeah, except that after coronavirus, people's discretionary spending is going to be rebooted in a big way. Or a big way. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good um, call. That's a really good call up. One point about how China is returning to business as usual. The one thing I I think that we should consider though is that that country has already gone through its own scares in the past and mm-hmm. The U.S. hasn't in in our lifetime gone through something like this, so I I think it's difficult to predict. I mean, we can all speculate what will happen, but if it continues long enough, I'm not. I think business will return, but I'm not sure what that will look like. Uh, I think people will go back to using modes of transport that they had before, but how they use it is going to be different. And the businesses and the companies that once they get through this initial, like, are we going to survive or not? And actually take a broader view and really pay attention to how people have changed their behavior and think ahead and change and opt- change their business to meet that are the ones that will actually survive. Because some companies are going to survive in the short term, like let's say scooter companies, right? There will be some companies that get aid or whatever, and they survive in the short term but they will not have adjusted to meet how people in the United States have changed their behavior and then will fail six months later. So companies like scooter companies and stuff that can uh, think about this now, which is very difficult because they're just trying to like keep the doors open, lights on. Weather the storm. But if they can manage to think ahead in terms of how we, and really understand how we're changing our behavior, because I do think that it will change. I already see it. When people are walking by each other, it like feels more awkward. And then we've only been in this for a few weeks. So I do think that how people's comfort level of jumping on a scooter or uh, a shared bike, they might want to do that and they might, but they want to feel differently about it. They want to feel that it's clean and they want to feel like there's going to be some changes. I think the the problem in the short term though, is that very few of these companies that we talk about every every week on this episode or on on the show, um, very few of them are making money. In fact, basically none of them are. Um, and so I think one of the things we also just thinking forward about sort of episodes we want to do for the next coming weeks as we as we're doing this double twice a week uh, cadence for for folks who are stuck at home um, is is maybe we should have Riley or, or some other venture capitalists on and discuss you know. Who are they going to actually give money to? Because that's the thing. Like all of these companies are going to be coming back to their investors and saying, you know, p- pick us. We're the ones who can who can survive. We're the ones who can make something work. As you say, like not only survive this short term challenge, but then also come back um, once things start to return a little bit to normal. Um, I'm very curious to see who's going to, you know, who they're sort of leaning towards towards you know, providing that sort of supportive funding for, because those are the ones that are going to make it. And, and the ones who are not going to be able to convince investors to, to kind of double down and, and get them through this tough time, um, they're dead. You know, it doesn't matter how good their idea is or, or how close they're, they are to being profitable. If they can't get that money, that's it. And Damon, I'd like to hear your view on it because you have been in the industry sort of helping people, um, uh, companies um, for the past few years. I mean, we've all seen and heard stories that pre, even pre-COVID, there was a tightening of, uh, it was just much more difficult for AV companies and other uh, mobility companies to raise money. So what was, what was your inside view of that, like pre-COVID and how has it changed? Yeah, yeah. No, I know it's a it's it's a great question, and I mean it really kind of speaks to the larger idea that like I think all of these issues were uh, were escalating over time anyway, and I think all of us were kind of expecting the next like eighteen months or so to really kind of uh, you know we're going to really start seeing a lot of companies go under, a lot of consolidation, a lot of buyouts. And that kind of thing. And I think that 18 month time frame where we had like a, you know, kind of a, a, a slow and then rapid escalation of companies going under. Um, I think that time frame is completely different now. I, I mean, I, I, I always expected, again, 18 months, kind of a peak, a lot of companies consolidating, a lot of companies going under and then having long tail effects of that over the course of the next several years. 
I think we're at the point now where the companies that survive the next six months are going to be incredibly lucky. Um, I think it's six weeks. I, I, I honestly, man, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think you're far off either. Um, and how did you feel about this Tarski Robotics uh, posts? Oh man, I mean, first of all, it was fire. Uh, and, yeah, and and before we get any further yeah, yeah. on this, we will we will be having Stefan from Starsky later this week. Oh, awesome! So so it'll be kind of a companion episode to this one. But let's let's absolutely let's, let's discuss a little bit right yeah, yeah. now just and, to get. And I'll say that I already spoke to Stefan. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but no, I really quickly getting getting back to that larger point and Starsky being a really good uh, illustration of that is. You know, again, all these companies that have been relying on VC money for so long, they've been having a hard time raising for the last year, year and a half, because the bloom has been off the rose on the AV industry and all the different associated suppliers in that space. Um, And yeah, I mean, everybody's having a hard time uh, financing. And now with everything else that's gone on, I mean, it's like almost trying to find a job in this environment, right? It's everybody is uh, everybody's kind of locked down for the time being. Um, and yeah, that larger idea that I, I think things are going to accelerate really, really quickly over the next year. Um, and it's going to be a hell of a thing to see, particularly for some of the companies that I think a lot of us had a lot of faith in, or at least knew they had something substantial to offer. I think that's what I'm worried about more than anything else. So question for you. Um, yeah. I would say from about what, May or April, 2019, I started hearing and also seeing how companies were changing. They were mm-hmm. pitching me a lot more often, which is always a sign that they're trying to fundraise. Absolutely. And that seemed to be, and then of course there weren't any announcements, you know, coming. There were some, there were some big ones, but um, around the AV, it wasn't, there wasn't a ton. Um, there were some. What I saw and probably what you saw, and this is just from an, from an outsider's perspective and having been on the other side of those pitches as well, which was a bunch of companies saying, hey, we're doing this, this and this. We've got this partnership, this partnership, this partnership. Um, and it was very much clearly a ploy to raise their profile ahead of their next fundraising round. Um, but to your point, they rarely have ever had anything to show for it. You know, it's very, very easy to say we've got this partnership, but how long is that partnership actually going to bear fruit, right? Right. Well, and, and and how do you define a partnership? So there were ones, and we've talked about this a number of times on the show, all partnerships are not created equally. Is this a development partnership? Is this a, you know, going into production partnership? And there, you know, is this a proof of concept? I mean, is this a pilot? If so, how long? And, and, and also you've got particularly a lot of these suppliers that are starting to now work with OEMs. And they want all of these suppliers to be a tier one, right? So they can actually do automotive grade, uh, automotive grade components, and very few, if any, are there. I mean, just in lidar space, which again, something that I've just came out of recently. There's only one company that's providing an autonomous grade lidar, right? That's Vallejo at this point. Um, so th- there's really th- there's very very few that are out there that are actually at the level where they even have not just the technology but the ability to ramp up and scale as quickly as needed to actually get money in the door. Why do you think though that there? Why did it? What was the what? What is behind so many companies suddenly having a very difficult time getting funding? We've we've all talked about it, but I'm just curious what your viewpoint is on that is it because it was just harder than people thought no i I, again and i think you guys have talked about this several times on the show which is just the idea that the space that was seen as this massive boon to bring this technology to market has just really kind of petered out the interest has gone away and you know and i think getting back to scarcity really quick you know what are the differentiating factors that are actually going to get you money in the door and what is the run rate on that, right? So, you know, how long is it going to take them to actually make some money out of this? And as we all know, VC has no patience. I'm not even convinced that VC understand what they're looking at. Well, no, and I think that's a fair point is you've got all these companies that have, or all these uh, venture arms, whether they're, you know, CBCs or just uh, traditional VCs that have always just invest invested in SaaS startups and, and that kind of thing. Um, we're talking about hardware, which we all know hardware is hard, combined with the fact that you're talking about critical safety components. And those things are really, really hard to uh, manufacture, test, deploy, all the other things that go along with that. Um, Kirsten, to your point, like I said, the bloom just came off the rose for investing in these companies 
probably 18 months ago. Um, and the ones that already had a substantial amount of investment or a substantial amount of movement seem to be in better shape than most. And then Starsky comes out. Yeah. Right. To me, what should be the scariest um, announcement was not necessarily viewed as that, but I view it as a for the for the rest of the industry is that Waymo hired or hired that Waymo raised uh, more than two billion dollars from external investors. What does that mean for all the little AV startups? I mean, if Waymo has to raise money, what does that mean for? I mean, that right there should have sent like. Shivers, yeah, yeah, because no, 100%. this is a company that everyone just assumed wouldn't had an op- like an endless bottomless piggy bank to to um, pull from. Um, well, and 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 you have to kind of. It, I, I I've been looking at it from the perspective of you know the fundraising came along just as Craftkick uh, and Co were really starting to shift a lot of their messaging away from the consumer side of things and much more on the commercial trucking side of things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think everybody is focused on more and more now, um, just because again, easier problem to solve, you know, known routes, all the other things that go along with that. Um, which again, makes the Starsky thing that much more kind of disturbing in the space yeah. Right? is when you've got a company that had that much knowledge, that much, uh, experience, um, and everybody I've talked to who, uh, has had any interactions with their engineers, so some of the, some of the best people in the industry to a large extent, um, if they can't make it. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm convinced though that Starsky had an optics problem, uh, which is that they couldn't cut through, get through to investors in a meaningful way. But what they were actually doing, like they just didn't grasp it. Well, which is I why mean, I think the sector has a PR problem due to the vast exaggerations that came out of it for so many years. No, absolutely. Well, and- that's I think absolutely a problem because the perspective of Many folks uh, is that autonomy is already here when it's not, and we've all seen numerous claims from a number of companies over the years that were covered breathlessly at the time that we've learned now actually was kind of full of shit. Actually, here's a question for all three of you: What is your earliest memory of a company claiming a long distance self driving drive? Auto. Because, yeah, auto, yeah. For auto me, it's also auto man. the truck. And I that remember had so much coverage, and and it wasn't unmanned, as far as we know. There was there was a lot of other. Um, Kirsten, it's it's uncrewed. Thank you. Uncrewed. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, Tesla for all the self driving nonsense they throw out, which is nonsense. Um, happy Tesla owner here. Um, I I kind of place it on on uh, on auto because after that. No one wanted to be seen as doing a demo that used language weaker than them. And so every single long distance trucking demo was self-driving and, but the businesses didn't catch up. And so if you're a VC, how are you supposed to tell it apart? I mean, but then let's, let's be clear about what's so scary about this Starsky thing is not only were they focused on sort of where the consensus has shifted is the, uh, the sort of more appealing market in the short term, which is trucking and logistics and that kind of thing. Uh, non non ride hailing applications essentially, um, but they were also already operating a business, and I think they had you know we had Stefan on the show, and I know Kirsten wrote a, a big piece about this at, at TechCrunch, um, but you know they were they had and and you know one of the that's one of the things I always liked about about Starsky was that they were like look you know we we need to understand this business so and we so we need to operate in it and that means operating human driven trucks alongside of our uh, un, uncrewed solution. Um, and, uh, you know, that didn't help. And so like, it's, it's really troubling that, that having a company and and by the way, also, you know, the other thing that I think people have a hard time appreciating, and also maybe this is why, you know, some people say this, this Starsky thing is a dagger in the heart of the whole autonomous space. I don't, yeah, I don't really buy it in part because, and Starsky wasn't really an autonomous, you know, and I always struggled actually with what was the right way to describe them. They're not autonomous. They're not driverless. Um, they're not just teleop. It's it's uncrewed, but they were also, you know, so 
so on the one hand, you know, and, and that's also, and I want to talk to Stefan a little bit about this. He brought up some points about um, reinforcement, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, supervised learning, machine learning, and how that sort of is not developing the way people thought. It doesn't seem as relevant to Starsky itself. Like, I think it's a great lesson for the whole industry, but it seems less relevant to Starsky itself because they weren't purely an autonomous play. Um, but but the troubling thing about this is that they were they weren't saying we'll develop this tech and then we'll figure out how to make money with it once it's developed. They were saying there's a problem and we're going to use whatever technology we can find to solve the problem. And that problem is just that it's hard to recruit truck drivers um, to, to drive long distances because they can't go home to their families. So let's take the most pragmatic technological approach to allowing truckers to drive these rigs or, or you know, involved but 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 then still go home to their families every day that pragmatism didn't help them so um it's both scary uh for everyone in the space because that pragmatism didn't save them but it's also you know not maybe not as scary you know yeah I, I i don't know that necessarily this is a dagger in the heart also for the whole autonomous space just because they weren't really as an autonomous you know fully autonomous company so we're going to talk to uh, Stefan um, and, and Aaron episode coming up after this, but I'm curious what everyone thinks. I mean, we, we talked about what's going to happen on the credit side of things in terms of being able to, you know, access capital. Well, what is going to happen with the industry the next six or two quarters, I would say? Do you see... All money drying up? Do you see it shifting to delivery? What do you think is going to happen? Um, and how do AV companies continue to make, you know, developmental headway? Do they all just go into, you know, under a rock and just quietly work, or can they afford to do that? I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, I, I think that if you have the money um, right now, if you're in, a, if you're relatively well positioned. That I think there maybe is some benefit to just look. I mean, you're not gonna you're gonna be competing in a losing battle for for pixels or 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 ink or whatever in the short term anyway. Um, I would say the better position companies will probably and and a lot of them have been kind of quiet anyway. Um, and heads down, I think that you'll see that for about six months or so. Um, it'll also I know a lot of people have, have weirdly at least before this. Um, I think I've been been trying to hire in comms because I think they realize that that being quiet has been a bit of a challenge, but I think they're going to push that out, try and save some money over six months and and sort of reboot that whole effort um, and then come out, hopefully, God, I hope, with some new lines of, of uh, you know, ways to to discuss this technology and, and, and their opportunities. Because I think, as Damon was discussing earlier, um, we can't just keep doing the same, you know, companies can't just keep doing the same things in this space. Um, things have changed and and they need to change in how like the way that they're discussing this technology and, and and presenting it to the public. I'll be really interested to see how many pitches you get over the next month or so, Kirsten, uh, just on the robotics and delivery side of things, because I think that's going to be one of the biggest focuses for the next few months. Um, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw more announcements coming from companies um, particularly out of China, which of course, you know, they can pretty much say whatever the hell they want and get away with it there. So, you know, uh, a level of scrutiny uh, here would be very helpful. Um, but I think that's going to be the primary focus uh, for the next month or two is really talking about some of these solutions that, again, were promised five years ago, but are coming to fruition in smaller scale today. Um, but no, I think it's going to be a bloodbath for the next six months, honestly, for the next two quarters. Um, six I weeks. Hear, I think six everybody's going to be very, very quiet for a while. And then we're going to start seeing just massive consolidation. So, Alex, yeah, Alex, you what did you, you said six weeks? Wrap this up. Six weeks. Okay. You say six weeks. How much, Alex, how much money does it, does an AV startup need to have in its bank right now just to, to make it through this? I don't have the answer. Uh, that's really a Riley Brennan question. Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, if a company isn't funded now, right now, oh, um, okay. or already in conversations that are going well right now, they've got a big problem. And that li- that leaves, what, five, six companies on the board? Oh. Which you've been predicting for a while was going to happen. I've said all along that the number of AV companies in the world would mirror the number of car companies in the world that uh, will align behind them. 
and you know the the famous story there'll be five car companies in the world plus morgan it's gonna be five av companies anyone else plus comma. who's a the plus, the plus yeah plus comma anyone else is working on very specific sub functionality or elements of driver assistance and they will also get acquired because most vcs are confused and don't understand the difference between adas and actual self driving and so driver assistance guys are going to get all gobbled up too because the 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 lack of certainty around the strategy of AV deployment, set aside the technology, the strategy of AV deployment is as important as the technology, which means that a change in strategy is going to delay by at least a few months, at least, how the f- currently funded players in the lead get to market. And while that's being figured out, car companies are going to have to sell cars. And they're going so, to they have to sell cars with the best ADAS possible. So I think we're going to see a renaissance in ADAS. And, I, and driver monitoring is going to kick in under Euro NCAP in the next couple of years. So I think there's actually some, there's some good news for the big tier ones um, who are focusing on that space. So, so you make a, a point, though, that like this does a lot of this um, depends on the automaker's getting back to selling a lot of cars. And that's, I think, one of the big questions that we need to look for in the coming weeks is as sales numbers start to come in, obviously there's going to be a short-term impact, but like how quickly are they going to bounce back? Because funding for AV and a whole bunch of other tech startups has rotated in the last couple of years from VC to actually more of these OEMs and strategic investors. Right. Um, you're seeing Toyota, for example, making, you know, making some of the bigger investments in the last year, Amazon in, in Rivian, things like that. And so I think you know, the car business is, is really crunched right now. And, um, you know, we're going to have to see how they recover. And I think the health of this sort of whole field of startups in mobility tech is going to depend on those car companies getting back to a place where they can feel confident in making uh, investments again. On the strategic investment side, it will be interesting to see what happens on that, because as Ed mentioned, um, on just to, to, to mention two things, and then we, we can leave. Um, Pitches have already started to answer your question, Damon. And so I'm yeah. going to just, uh, because I know that a number of comms people listen to this show, there is a right way and a wrong way to capitalize on a pandemic that is striking fear in a lot of people and changing business. God, yes. <gasps> so- Guys, listen, listen to Kirsten here, please. <laughs> yes, yes. Everyone, this is important. Yeah. So really think through, A, is this providing any real service in this moment? Or are you just putting something in a subject line that's going to make me open this? If I open that, and then I read something that is uh, clearly trying to be opportunistic, I am not only going to ignore it, I'm probably going to think twice about ever covering your company. Secondly, and this has now come up multiple times, if you're a company in the AV space, and you want to go off record to talk about your tech, which is essentially explaining your business model, then you are not ready to talk to the media about what you're doing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I'm just like, <laughs> that's that's insane. Like, yeah. I, I I would never ask any executive to go off record to talk about their business plan <laughs> with the journalist. Well, just basic. Because like, they why, wouldn't even like, be in that I, position I, I, in the first place. I've been place. asking questions like, well, how is your tech different than these companies? Yeah. I'm not asking for, you know, your the machine learning algorithm. Stuff. I want to understand if you can explain the difference between this company and what you're doing. And it's now happened enough times in the last three weeks or so, four weeks. Um, and, and the level of like thirst um, to get coverage on stuff has also increased because I think there, there is some of that, you know, desperation. Um, so I'm not going to say six weeks, Alex, I think that what's going to happen, is going to be two waves. They're going to be the companies that managed to survive the initial, but will ultimately fail in the next six months following. And it's going to be spread out. And then it's going to become all about how to sell or get acquired. Mm-hmm. And the other the other little insight is that I think that if companies like Comma AI can stay lean, they could come out ahead um and kind of pretty well 
um, positioned because it's not as expensive doing that type of business as it is to run an AV robotaxi type of company or develop that tech. It's also such a niche right now as well. Like it's, it's only targeted for people that are willing to hack into their cars, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, so much to discuss, but unfortunately we are out of time. Um, so uh, we will continue to do two episodes a week here. Um, special thanks to Damon. Damon, great to have you back on as oh, always. It was, it was an absolute gang. blast as always. Thanks, guys. And if you're a company running out of time, something <laughs> tells me that at least one of the people on today's episode will tell you exactly how you might solve that problem. I yeah. can also just give some free advice, just so you know, so everyone knows. So. Uh, and yeah, but there's nothing quite as good as the advice you get behind closed doors, True. right, Damon? <laughs> the absolute truth. Absolute truth. Look for an announcement in the next day or two. Congratulations. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, yeah, look for our episode with Stefan uh, Seltz-Oxmacher of Starsky. That'll be coming up later this week. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it's really awesome that he's joining us because um, it, there's a lot of times it's, you know, uh, when things get tough. Um, and especially when your company goes out of business, uh, I think the instinct is to throw everyone under the bus, run away and hide. Mm-hmm. And and I really applaud Stefan for, um, for, for not doing that, for coming out and sharing the lessons he's learned. And, um, and for the candor of his sure, blog post, honestly. The yeah, exactly. And so I'm sure that episode will be really good, but also, you know, other companies who are in the space, um, who are struggling, uh, are maybe going out of business or will go out of business, you know, please, uh, use this opportunity, even if it's not working out for you. Um, let's really try and use this opportunity to help everybody learn from these experiences. Clearly, um, not you know, every, everyone's been learning at every step of the way here, um, and the more we share those uh, those lessons, the better. And uh, we at the Atonicast will continue to do that on the next and all subsequent episodes of the Atonicast. And shameless plug: please check out my discussion with Kara Swisher on the No Parking Podcast, which is awesome. I'll be listening to that right now. Swisher. Nice. Good for you. Good get. Bye, guys. All right. Take care, guys.